Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. The anti-Trump conspiracy is not about Democrats versus Republicans. It's not about the ebb and flow of political power lawfully and peacefully transferred. It is about globalists versus nationalists, and they are locked in the old and continuous communist versus anti-communist struggle and fighting to the end whether we, the anti-communists, recognize it or not. So writes Diana West, the award-winning author of The Red Thread, A Search for Ideological Drivers Inside the Anti-Trump Conspiracy, and one of my guests on today's show. It's a stark claim, and ominous, and if true, demands that we look at the Trump impeachment in a whole new light. Joining in to explore it is Frank Gaffney, Assistant Secretary of Defense under President Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy, and vice chairman of the Committee for the Present Danger. Diana, Frank. Uh, Diana, you've also written eloquently about the struggle that's been going on for over a century. You wrote about it in uh, The American Betrayal, um, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character, um, traces, the, traces the roots of what's, going, what's happening yes. today. Let, let's start with that. Yes, it's a good place to start because the red thread and what's happening to President Trump is directly related to this century-long struggle that you refer to. Um, we have been subject to infiltration, to subversion, to people who want to take advantage of our liberty to essentially subvert the constitutional republic that, that we were endowed with. And when you, when you start trying to peel it back and understand, well, why would this be going on? Why would we be in this struggle right now with impeachment uh, over, you know, trumped up charges, no pun intended? Um, it's not really about this week's headlines or last month's headlines or even the 2016 election. It does go back to the direction that a number of generations, I believe, have been able to take this country in away from its uh, constitutional roots and turn it toward the globalist trend, toward the uh, movement, toward a place where nations dissolve and elites rise up and take power and citizens become subjects. And this, of course, doesn't happen overnight. It seems that way because we see in Donald Trump a catalyst for um, a reaction that has brought these people out into the light, has brought this, uh, what many of us, Frank Gaffney included, we talk about it all the time, call a coup. A coup being staged all around Washington in various venues, now in the Congress. And Donald Trump, I will just throw back at you, is the catalyst because he is a counter-revolutionary figure, namely, innately anti-communist, a nation builder. The nation is the bulwark of defense against globalism, the nation state. And when you see a candidate come up who want, has an agenda of restoring the nation, you realize that these people are rising but, up in reaction but, but, against that. So, so the ideological roots are communism, Marxism. Yes. And the drivers of 
the infiltration, you believe you, it started as early as the 20s when Lenin and then Stalin took over Russia. Well, even before that, because okay. Lenin and Stalin would be the revolutionary right. aspect, but you do see Marxism coming into the country in the 19th century, of course, um, after the, the 1848 or so. Was there a link between Marxism and early progressivism? Absolutely. Because that's, I think, about 1880s. You know, the sure. modern textbooks now date American history from 1880 when the progressives came began. into it. <laughs> What's that? That's, That's when, when everything it began. began. <laughs> right, everything began. Everything began. Frank. All that, all that prelude was, uh, you know, white supremacist, slaveholding people who are nothing but a distraction and uh, and an embarrassment. The real America began with the progressive movement in the late '80s. Um, but uh, look, the point is that, uh, and Diana has done such a service to the country. I really believe in laying this out because. If you don't understand this enemy within phenomenon and the fact that there always are enemies within, and in particular, the more open, the more free the society, the more they're able to operate right. almost in the open, well, but, but certainly well, effectively well, well, that's against a, That's an interesting observation coming from you because you're famous for fighting Russia and radical Islam. And now with Committee for Present Danger, China, and so that's an external enemy. But mm -hmm. well, I guess what you're saying, they're fighting the war on an inside front. Stealth. Stealth. What I'm what I'm basically saying yeah. is that whichever of the isms we decide to assign to yeah. a particular phase, we're dealing with basically totalitarianism. And the totalitarians have as part of their tradecraft operating subversively, as Dinah says, inside the enemy camp, because it invariably makes easier the job of trying to dominate that enemy from the outside. And what's doubly painful about this as we, as we really try to understand what's afoot is how successfully the totalitarians have disabled what might be thought of as our antibodies to these kinds who, of who are the personalities enemies. associated with? You mentioned somebody, Wirt. Uh, is there a story there? Uh, There's a great story there, which is a very um, important point to start with because I think he is the first American to be essentially destroyed by the media. So he is a figure worth looking back to. This would be in the 30s? This would be in the 30s. Yeah. And William Wirt was probably a progressive, actually. He was an educator uh, from Indiana. And he must have been a great guy. It must have been a great guy. <laughs> and he had a lot of friends who um, in Washington and he came when Franklin Roosevelt came to town with the New Deal and he came to town and was uh, given a dinner and at the home of his um, former secretary, who now was working in at the time an education office. There wasn't a department of education. And they had this dinner with other New Dealers, mid-level people, uh, a correspondent from the Soviet news agency TASS as well, an American, and he heard revolution being discussed. He heard that Roosevelt was actually going to be overthrown, that this was a way to overthrow the nation of, of, of Washington and Lincoln and start anew and essentially have an, a Russian revolution here in this New Deal period. And what's interesting about Wirt is he was terribly upset and he sought to tell the newspapers. He sought to tell any famous person he could. He wrote 
scores of letters to every famous person in America he could think of got nowhere until a businessman actually took him up on it and was going through the uh, the revolutionary uh, Roosevelt uh, program in business at that point and was this would be 1933 32, 34 34 30, okay. 34 and he read William Wirt's testimony about this dinner into the congressional record and all hell broke loose and we had the equivalent of a 24-7 news cycle back in the day when we were still doing telegraph and newspapers and radio hookup was new. Um, they had to have hearings and find out what was, was their revolution inside the New Deal. And essentially what <clears throat> we learned about it later, very similar to the Trump impeachment inquiry, you had a frame-up of William Wirt by all of the guests at the dinner party, by the three... Democrats who ran this select committee with two Republicans to hear these charges. And they essentially portrayed him as a liar who had been talking nonsensically all night. And the media made fun of him. President Roosevelt made fun of him. I mean, his name was famous for a while as this kook and worse. Yeah, he, you claim they said that he was drinking and he talked all night and we didn't say anything. Thing. And they, they not only said he was wrong, they Gas said he was a bad guy. I think Gas it's a technical term for okay. it. And <laughs> the, the story went away, but the kicker was that one of those three Democrats was a man that Roosevelt actually got out of office later on because he was against Roosevelt's court packing scheme. Uh, John J. O'Connor was his name from New York. He actually wrote a mea culpa and published it in the hmm. newspapers of the day, and he apologized to the then-deceased William Wirt and admitted how they had set their story straight, how they had essentially railroaded him yeah, to make well, this story go away. It's like Donovan, where do I get my reputation back? It's unbelievable, but the kicker also is that at this very moment, William Wirt was trying to tell the country about the revolutionary nature of the New Dealers. You had Whitaker Chambers coming to town, hmm in order to organize secretly with his Soviet handler at his side the, the cells inside the federal government that later became so famous for all of the harm they did. And the first person he met in Washington was Alger Hiss. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Diana West and Frank Gaffney, and we're talking at sort of the roots of what, uh, what is now manifesting itself as the, uh, the Trump impeachment. Indeed. It's the fascinating really thing, again, about Dinah's research is so we've got Alger Hiss these personal the, anecdotes of yeah. individuals who played who these up. remarkable yeah. roles and are destroyed. Well, there was, a, part of, there was a point in 1933. We had the Russian Revolution, terrible. Lenin came in, then Stalin. And then Roosevelt did something in 1933. He recognized the USSR. Right. That was reversing the policies of four presidents and six secretaries of state before him who had rejected this normalization of this communist regime that had overthrown the government and executed the, 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 royal, the Romanov family um, and declared revolutionary uh, 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 intentions against the rest of the world. Um, they didn't think it was good business or good for America. He was, to, the, first, he was the first globalist. Yes. Or, or the first to... Well, really I'm, take I'm it somewhere if we go after. I mean, yes. But he, had, he, had, he, had, he saw the world as one big uh, Soviet... Uh, Literally, he was the first to advocate convergence of the U.S. system, the free system yeah, with the, with the socialist system. The yes. borderless, the open well, border. Convergence. Yeah, convergence. Yes. And, uh, as Diana documents, 
he was surrounded by actual communists. Roosevelt was. Roosevelt yes. was. Well, who role, were interested not Hopkins just in globalism, in but communism. But, right. So who was responsible for the 33 decision? Was it Harry Hopkins? Was it somebody no. else? No, it wasn't Harry Hopkins. He hadn't entered the White House uh, in, in his powerful role yet. Yeah. It was a number of people, actually. Um, it was businessmen. It was uh, uh, people who wanted to see this pushed through um, for political reasons. But I think Roosevelt was very keen to do it. And um, it caused great furor in the land because there were still so many Americans who were deeply opposed to communism. Well, it's one of the people, Armin Hammer, because there are a lot of businessmen that wanted Absolutely. to do business in Russia and they wanted it opened sure. up for that reason. The, the other piece of it, though, Bill, as American Betrayal recounts, is the deal that he thought he was getting right. to make this okay. Right. And you need to explain that. how that worked. It was a very short agreement that was signed. You would think it would be something, you know, on the level of a thick treaty or something, but it was just a few pages. And essentially, it was a, it was a promise, a series of promises made by the Soviet government that they would cease and desist and never engage in any sort of subversive activities in our country. They would never support by monetary or other means any groups inside our borders seeking the overthrow of our nation. And it kind of went on from there in the same vein. And the irony, if it is an irony, it's much worse than an irony, but the tragedy really is, this was already underway. These activities, Soviet-supported activities to overthrow the government were underway. And on the heels of this agreement, it became so much more, it became so much easier. Well, didn't you write that there were more people, mainly men, but more people in the Soviet intelligence community than there were in the army? Didn't I read that? Uh, was that oh, it, a little, kind, yes. I mean, we're the, talking the millions of people engaged in, in this. In, yeah, engaged. Security apparatus. So the, I, I think no. where I'm it, going with this is this has all been pushed into some sort of, oh, that's just ancient times, right. and that didn't really happen, and Joe McCarthy right. came along, and we all knew that wasn't true. But your research shows that it all was true. It all was true, and there were any number of Americans fighting it, starting with William Wirt, William Wirt who stood up yeah. and testified. I call them the truth tellers, and there are a series of them in the book. I mean, the book is is it's it's depressing in the sense that it is very um, stiff medicine to find out all of these terrible things were going on in our government by so many people we we look up to and put on statues. But the thing that I I find very um, inspiring about the research was I discovered so many of these lost heroes, mm. profiles who stood and up, courage, profiles and real courage, who stood up didn't care what came at them and tried to tell the truth and tried to help the country. And that would include Senator Joseph McCarthy. It would include Dr. Mm -hmm. William Ward. It would include um, many, a man named Major George Racy Jordan later on. You know, there's so many of these people. Congressman Deese, was it? Congressman Deese? Yeah, com Congressman Dyes. Dyes. Yes, Dyes, Dyes had his own committee investigating this before, before, before McCarthy. McCarthy. Right. And Hamilton Fish was starting that even earlier. I mean, there were yeah. people underway trying to look at this really from 1920 in New York State. This was recognized as a deep problem. If we had people coming from the Soviet Union and other revolutionary nations who sought to replicate the revolution here, using these stealth techniques and using violence and using terrorism and yeah. all the other techniques, subverting the education system, 
all of these things were happening before we think of them happening now. I mean, now we tend to think a lot of these things took place in the 1960s or something like that. Well, well the, cult no. the, the culture wars began in Hollywood in the 30s. And I think you've read part your, of father, the your father was a screenwriter and not later a novelist. And there were a number of people writing screenplays about what was really going on in Russia. Horror stories would have made a great film. Well, didn't make films though. Yeah, they but didn't there, get before into there didn't was make a blacklist. Cut. Before there was a blacklist, there was a blacklist of, of, of stories anti- that were telling what was really going on in uh, in Russia. Right, that would be um, where you see a number of the books. There were quite a number of books telling us what was going on in Russia. Great stories being told. Uh, Darkness at Noon to take one by Arthur Kessler, Arthur Kessler very yeah. famous, but a number of uh, memoirs and and different kinds of novels being written. And when you see the communists infiltrate Hollywood, you literally see them taking jobs like story readers and and agents and things like that who are able to be gatekeepers of what actually gets made. Mm -hmm. And so years later, when we start seeing some of the so-called Hollywood 10 writing about this kind of uh, what was going on in Hollywood, you see probably the most talented member of the Hollywood 10, Dalton Trumbo, a communist, bragging about how it was that they were able to keep these stories from being told on the silver mm-hmm. screen. Because it's that powerful. Movies are that powerful. Um, and they sought to keep the stories off the silver screen. And they mainly did. A few do sneak through. You do find a few. But by and large, they did not. And that was a purposeful propaganda weapon. And interestingly, this was the prelude to what profoundly affected Ronald Reagan. Yes. Subsequently, during his time, when he as, was in Hollywood, or as when the he was president of the Screen Actors Guild, screen actors he, was Guild. These... he watched the communists yes. very deliberately dominating and trying to manipulate the products of Hollywood, and that is one of the things that catalyzed his anti-communist yes, fur. He he actually testified against them in congressional hearings that were subsequently held. But I, I want Diane for you to talk a little bit about Congressman. Dice. Dice and what happened to him because he's another of the yes. casualties of this uh, war against the enemy within. Yes, well, he's a very interesting man. He was a de- Texas Democrat. So, again, we're looking at not just a partisan effort to unmask communists within, we're looking at both parties, both houses of, of the Congress. And he was the uh, initial chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee, opening shop in 1938. It was also called the Dyes Committee because of his uh, chairmanship. What he went through, we know um, in terms of what Joseph McCarthy went through. Everything Joseph McCarthy went through, Martin Dyes went through first. He was called the same kinds of names. He was sabotaged by all kinds of um, frame-ups. People tried to... Um, uh, you know, set up all these sorts of um, kind of honey traps and and forgery schemes and you know different things around him to try to get headlines that would take him down. You know, again, this 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 destructive uh, use of media and politics that we see today with impeachment and Donald Trump. We suppressing see the truth tellers. suppressing the truth tellers trying to do that. And in, in later on, um, you know, he does not. He tried to go into the Senate, and we see Roosevelt actually working very hard to prevent him from going forward. They had been uh, collegial. I mean, they were both Democrats, but they broke 
over this. And Roosevelt actually said to him, when he opened up this investigatory uh, committee, which was designed to investigate totalitarianism of all kinds. So he was looking at fascists. He did great investigations into the German Bund, uh, what the Japanese were doing here in the 1930s, and the communists. And Roosevelt told him, if you would just not look at the communists, I could support this. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Frank Gaffney and Diana West. And we're talking about, really, the, the, the beginnings of what was started out as a movement to suppress anti-communists, and now has evolved into something much more sinister in 2019. Mm. At this, this point about trying to make sure that people who were actually uncovering what was going on ran into the buzzsaw of FDR, right. who, when confronted with evidence that the commitments the Soviets had made to him were not being honored, became part of the enablers of the communists within That's his really ranks. That's a really important point. It's, yeah. it's, well, let, it's me, let me go ahead really at the, the core of the we're problem. Talking, we're talking about communists. Isn't, isn't that sort of outdated? I mean, we're not really... But then AOC comes along, and now we're thinking, well... She made it okay to talk made, about. <laughs> AOC's made it. So thank you, <laughs> thank thank you, you. AOC, for giving us this uh, right. space to talk about this. But that was so unfashionable. The yes. anti, you know, and then of course McCarthy was demonized. It was made. I'm trying to bring it from the 30s to, to exactly. this. Exactly. No, it's it's a it's it all is of a piece. It's a continuum. And so bring, bring us up to date with with what happened to McCarthy, starting with what Dice told him. What yes. happened to him based on his own experience? Yes, I know there is this remarkable anecdote that Martin Dice tells in his memoir about 19 early 1950 um, when. Joseph McCarthy is about to start his investigations. And he sees Martin, they see each other um, in, a, in a restaurant in Washington that's long gone, Harvey's, which is on Connecticut Avenue, right by the Mayflower, it was, yeah. by the Mayflower mm -hmm. Hotel. Big, big watering hole of yore. And they meet and they, they chat and uh, they talk about what McCarthy is going to be doing. And he asks for advice. And I just always think of that moment as if, you know, the, the sky's opening up and thunderclaps and sparks and fire. I mean, it was like this moment right before McCarthy walks into the, the, the hot fires and he's going. He's going to go no matter what. Sounds and like we need to get Charlton Heston to play. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he once he took hold of this issue, he did not... Buckle, and I think his courage and his resilience is, in our time, very Trump-like. In the sense that there is this sense of damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead, regardless of what anyone says, what anyone does, and this same patriotism that is essentially driving these two figures. Mm. So it, it's and it's, Dice and Dice warned him that well, he, the, would he would be destroyed. He what would about be all destroyed. the alcoholism and the reputation of Ed Hominen stuff? I mean, it's I Ed think I'm glad stuff. Trump doesn't drink. I don't Amen. believe McCarthy drank in any way except So this was social. just a caricature to yes. uh, demonize the guy. Yes, the kind of work he did would make drinking very difficult because he was an incredible preparation yeah. uh, man and he was a, a tremendous scholar, really, of everything he did. He went through college and law school in a remarkable short number of years. 
Um, he did it after he had dropped out to start his own business. He had a chicken farm when he was a teenager. And his, his mother bemoaned this because she thought he was so bright, but he wanted to live, came out, out of rural Wisconsin and started this business. And when it failed due to, uh, he had got pneumonia or something and his chickens died, he ended up going back toward uh, uh, school. And when he did it, he was sitting with much younger people. He finished all, all his degrees became the youngest circuit court judge ever elected in Wisconsin, mm. went to war even though he didn't have to as a judge, uh, went on bombing missions even though he didn't have to as an intelligence officer. I mean, he was always this super achiever. Um, and when he did his investigations, they were deeply researched. They were well-conducted within all the rules. I mean, he's all of this is so much... All this has been wiped from <clears throat> history. Yeah. Completely. Completely. That's the that's the real story here. That is the real story. The degree all these to which people. all of this has been yeah. effaced. It's like Trotsky being eliminated from the old a photographs picture. of yeah. the Soviet leadership. Well, he was vilified because that time he raised his hand, had a piece of paper in it. I have names here, and then he never produced. The no, list. he did produce. He did produce oh, the list. So, so many that names. Is, see, what so a, many names. The, the, I mean, that so is one of those stories. Produced. Well, that's he one had of those to stories. be silenced. Is the yeah, point. he had to be silenced. And I mean, that is one of the weirdest stories when you actually try to understand it, because it you say, well, why does it matter if he had fifty-one or eighty-one names to begin, or fifty-seven or eighty-one names, or the ultimate hundred and however many it was? It was, it became one of those details that the press and his political enemies focused on to a point where then people thought it mattered. The point was. There were these, and, and there is a mathematical equation that explains both. That's probably too boring to go into, but it came out of an earlier... There, there's a mathematical equation? Yes. Okay. There's an earlier look at the security risks in the State Department. Some number of them were fired. Subtract that from the first number, and you get one of these numbers that mm -hmm. then the press argues about. Well, they're still on the payroll, regardless of how many mm. we're talking about. And so when and he, it wasn't just the numbers, no, it Bill. This is the key the point. And again, Dinah does such a terrific job of sort of exposing now, is this, all this. Is this These in are the people red who had senior American positions. Betrayal. American betrayal. American betrayal, mostly. But they had senior positions. They were they writing were policy. powerfully yes. influential people. Yes. And the consequences of their penetration and, well, and use of their government power well, to his ins of the serving the Soviets of, uh, of Roosevelt's of meetings Yalta. with uh, at Yalta. Yes, yes. and, Among he others. and the, the United too. Nations. Um, you look at our world. We talked about globalism versus nationalism when we started our conversation. Sure. The, the foundations of globalism... The foundational institutions, namely the United Nations, the IMF, these were actually brought into existence by two Soviet agents working inside, covertly, the United States government, namely Alger Hiss with the UN and Harry Dexter White, who had risen to become the second to the top man at the Treasury Department for many years inside the Roosevelt administration. This is staggering when you actually think of what globalism does to a nation and how it fits in with international socialism, communist domination, De all define, the rest of define it. Define what you all mean as globalism. What, I, what? Globalism is one of those words that I would simply define as, as a, a network of former nations that are run by unelected bureaucrats. Unelected bureaucrats, like, like, a Brussels, like a Brussels. Yes, like a, Brussels, like a Brussels world government, something Strobe Talbot is a big uh, booster of, has always been. 
Um, yes, this notion that there are elites that have more in common with each other, regardless of their national origin, if they have a nation. And they essentially turn citizens of nations into subjects. Mm -hmm. Citizens of the world. Well, you know, it's fascinating. We had Matt and Mercy Schlapp on a few ah. shows ago, and they're running CPACs all over the world, in Brazil, Japan, and they're finding the same dynamic about the rest of us versus the yes. elites going on in these countries. They've had people show up at rallies in uh, Japan with uh, MAGA hats on. Mm -hmm. I believe it, yeah. But so the globalists are the global elites, and it, it's and that's. But this has been they're happening the since the 30s. Yes, they're the dictators. Okay. It's been happening, as Diana says, basically, I guess, since the advent of communism in the Soviet Union. But it became part and parcel. The common turn was all about an international communist mm -hmm. arm of the Soviet state. And it began in earnest, I think, in terms of its real headway in the West with the FDR the administration. administration. And I, I, before we move on, just quickly, one other dramatic individual is Harry Hopkins. You mentioned yes. him at the yeah, beginning. We, let's talk about Hopkins. He lived Describe, in the White House for years. his role, yeah. Diana, yeah. Yes. and the influence he particularly had on the nuclear weapon program. Yes, this is just such an amazing story that is also whitewashed. And I learned when I was doing this research, I had not, I mean, I was just you know, a credit away from a history major at Yale. I was an English major. So I'm just trying to say that I read a, quite a lot of history as a, as a college student, never really heard of Harry Hopkins. Just knew his name, knew this gaunt figure, part of the New Deal. He was a sickly man. And when I started this line of research and, and found how important he was, it staggered. It was staggering to learn about, but he became so close to Roosevelt that, yes, he lived inside the White House for three years during the war. And he became so important in Washington that nothing really was done unless he initialed it. I mean, Roosevelt was one thing, but Harry Hopkins was really where the power the was in a number of, of very key events and, and, and actions. So who was he? What's his, what, how did he... How, how, he comes from the Midwest, okay. son of a harness maker, yeah. very folksy background, um, ended up in the progressive movement, you would say. He voted socialist, I believe, in the teens mm -hmm. in New York. He worked in the Governor Roosevelt administration somewhere or other. Um, he comes to Washington and becomes famous uh, for spending money very quickly with relief, relief checks, very fast in the New Deal. And he's essentially Eleanor's buddy at that point, but he does segue closer and closer to power with, with Roosevelt. But it's a good question, who is he? It's, he's, he's very mysterious in a number of ways. We don't know a lot about his movements. Uh, we do know, mainly from, interestingly enough, some of the most damning things about him we find out from Soviet records. In other words, these weren't things that he wrote about or were part Which of the Which all came out record. after 1989. Yes. Yeah. Although there were suspicions about him earlier, but yeah. we do know for Frank is referring to um, his activities uh, telling the, the Soviet embassy in 1943 that the FBI was starting to observe their attempts to steal the atomic secrets. And he literally turns over Hoover's secret message to him and Roosevelt. Notice how important he is. It's to, not just to Roosevelt, it's to the two of them. He turns it over to the Soviet embassy mm -hmm. and lets them know they're under surveillance. That's a pretty... That's huge. That's huge. 
Now, oh what was treason. It's called treason. Yeah, that's, that, that deserves the T word. What was known at the time, I mentioned his name, there was one witness, one American witness. There were other incidents um, as well, but this is a very good one to look at. There was one witness who came forward. His name was Major George Racy Jordan. And if you look at our history books today, he's one of those people like William Word, if he appears, who's just dismissed as a crackpot. Mm-hmm. Well, he wasn't a crackpot. There are hearings that have show him testifying twice, whereby what he could um, essentially could be, what could be confirmed with the document, in other words, uh, a flight or a bill of lading or some kind of uh, document trail, whatever could be confirmed in his story was confirmable. The one thing he could not have a witness to was his conversation with Harry Hopkins, where Harry Hopkins tells him, as he was an expediter of Lend-Lease material, to, to the push Union. through to the Soviet Union, to on the QT very quietly push through a shipment from Canada, which Jordan later finds out was raw uranium. And it had to go from Canada, and there, ship, there are documents showing, yes, this did go through, and there are people along the way who identified it as this, this grade of uranium. It had to go from Canada because General Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, had put an embargo on uranium exports. So Hopkins is involved with getting around General Groves' embargo on the export of uranium, which at that time we still had not fully figured out yet in terms of how to get our nuclear program underway. So the president's top advisor is involved with helping the Soviets keep up. And indeed, there were many other things in the shipments that went to them that essentially created their own experimental atomic pile, the aluminum tubing, the two dozen other interesting elements that have to go along with the uranium. But this that basically gave them a leg up yes. on the whole nuclear weapons enterprise. So we right. don't know who atomic he was, bomb. but we know what he did. Yes, but he is whitewashed, and you will see if you look him up on Amazon or your friendly bookseller, you will find whitewashing books to this day about how great he was, how he helped us win the war, how we couldn't have done anything without him. I mean, he's getting a new lease on life in the recent biographies and histories, which is shocking. I do the opposite in American Betrayal. I pull together the dossier of what is known, what was known at the time, and what we've later learned to pull together a picture of Harry Hopkins that is extremely damning. And... I think it's fair to say some of the controversy that has surrounded American betrayal and the efforts to silence Diana as she tells this story have to do with the fact that she is exposing uh, Harry Hopkins and others, but particularly Harry Hopkins as I would argue, at least an agent of influence of the Soviet Union, if not something more. And again, Bill, you're talking about, in this program, the enemy within. You're talking about how something like this could ever have happened, which is really the necessary foundation for understanding what's happening today. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Diana West and Frank Gaffney, and we're talking about the antecedents to uh, what's going on today in Washington with the deep state and uh, the enemy within. Diana, Frank, uh, we're trying to get to today, and we're still yeah. in the 30s. No, well, <laughs> we, this, this I, is the bridge. I have a feeling we this can is, do will a be, we, will, we will be continuing. <laughs> to be continued, for sure. Well, another, another show. But, I mean, how do we... So we have Hopkins, Roosevelt. The thing I'm, I'm 
I, I wonder about all this because I've been brainwashed as much as anybody in terms of not, you know, just the superficial treatment sure. of these things in history. I'm not the all of scholar. us have. Well, but by accident, what's, what, what's the roots of this? I mean, Frank, I'll, I'll ask you. You're, you've been accused of being a conspiracy theorist, so repeatedly. <laughs> Look, but I think I've said it's not, this it's not, before. It's Bill. not that you're paranoid. They really are trying to get you. Uh, it's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> uh, our friend and colleague Andy McCarthy. Sure. who served with great distinction, of course, as an assistant U.S. attorney under Rudy Giuliani, used to say that in his time in the Southern District of New York office, there was an expression. Every conspiracy begins with a conspiracy theory. Sure. Somebody cooks up the idea and then executes it. The difference between just wild-eyed conspiracy theorizing and actually understanding conspiracies that have taken place are the facts, the facts of what was done to execute the strategy. And I, I guess the segue that I would just argue, Bill, is, is before us is in our country's history, we have experienced enemies within. We've witnessed them operating with catastrophic effects, really, when you think about it. Um, the, the entire Cold War threat from the Soviet Union was greatly facilitated. It may have happened over time eventually, but it was greatly yeah. facilitated, made much more rapid in sure. terms of its appearance Dangerous. by virtue of the leg up that an agent of influence seems to have given them. Could that experience explain what's happening today as we look at people inside our government who have some of the same ideological right. drivers behind them as the people we're talking about in the 30s and 40s and 50s, driving in our moment, in this time, an effort to destroy this country or at least to remove its president. Could that possibly happen? I would argue that what Diana's documented so shows that it certainly could. And it's as good an explanation for what's taking place today as any we've got. Well, then the source, the conspiracy, starts with hearts and minds and people getting one over to this notion of how wonderful socialism, communism is, and it's the ideal system, and it's never worked because we never really tried it. Right. Um, and that's still at work. Improperly applied. Improperly applied. applied. That's still at work today with yeah. AOC. But you take a guy that you write about in the, in the red thread, James Comey. Yes, he's a good bridge. FBI, big American, you know, good guy. Is he from the Midwest? It doesn't matter. But anyway, he's, he's, Virginia, think of yeah, he's got York. a Boy Scout image, York. so on yeah, and so forth. He's from New York. And it turns out, as you write, that yeah. he was he studied and got his senior thesis in, in Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr and James Comey are a great bridge because if you go back to that terrible moment when FDR normalizes relations with this abnormal regime, the Bolshevik regime, Stalin's regime in 1933, one of the people who was instrumental in pushing that on the uh, president was Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr led an effort who, to... Who was he, though? Reinhold Niebuhr was a theologian. He's usually described as Barack Obama's favorite theologian. He's described as a liberal Protestant theologian. I knew nothing more than that when I started this research. 
And when I started doing a deep dive on him, particularly looking at this period of the 1930s, he um, was essentially a Marxist wearing a clerical collar, very much into class war. He lectured about, um, there's a, a little uh, AP story that has urges force to change social order on a college campus. He went mm -hmm. to Swarthmore and was actually lecturing about overthrowing the social order That's with force. Social justice warrior. And this is the man that James Comey to this day honors as his most, his deepest influence on his own theory of justice. Mm. He started this in the 1980s when he was at William and Mary as a uh, senior, when he also described himself as a communist. So if you just hold on to that for a moment, if he described himself as a communist when he discovered Reinhold Niebuhr as his uh his, his lodestar, how is it that in 2018 he is still attesting to Reinhold Niebuhr's important influence on him and citing the very books Niebuhr wrote in his most militant period? He was a socialist, a capital S Socialist Party member. He was and, talking about revolutions as, you know. And, and, and he wrote uh, Niebuhr's notion of justice is valid for all nations mm. and all times. All time. And he also wrote... Uh, his notion of justice includes no right and no wrong. Right. There are no moral absolutes. It's all relative. And if you believe that moral relativism is one of the real diseases of the last 150 years, this is right at the heart of the matter. And we've yes. got the head of the I FBI believes there's no right and there's no wrong. Yes. And who even says to this day he's not quite sure what he is politically. So he was a communist. What is he now? We don't know, but what we know is what he's done. And Bill, this is the crux of what Dinah's exposed in the red thread, I think, is we have in the director of the FBI, James Comey, in the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, John Brennan, in the director of the National Intelligence Office, James Clapper, three men who have all, to varying degrees, embraced this kind of globalist or perhaps even hard left Immoral. Yeah. agenda and are at the center of a conspiracy, a coup, if you will, to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president in the first instance, to undermine his transition to the presidency once he's elected, and then to unseat him once he took office. This is the kind of conspiracy, this is the kind of enemy within threat that has a very direct lineage from, I think, this earlier time we've been discussing at such length. And, and the, real, the really terrifying thing is we have ceased as a nation to even think seriously about the possibility that this could happen to us, that this kind of subversion could take place inside our government, let alone at its highest levels. That's why it's so important, I think, to continue drilling down on this particular topic. Well, we will continue, believe me. But it's, I have friends, I have a friend who wrote an essay about finding common ground with liberals at Thanksgiving. And, you know, we, this is, as I said at the outset, this is not just a Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative. This is much more deep and rooted and ideological. And we've got state actors, of mm -hmm. course, the people in the intelligence services, 
But then we have the people who have been ideologically influenced by somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm -hmm. And Niebuhr, I just superficially, I, you know, nice, nice philosopher, Christian, sure. good guy. Well, you see a quote by Reinhold Niebuhr, must be good. But he, he wrote, he, he believed things like, uh, the Christian in politics must be willing to transgress any purely Christian ethic. He must be willing to sin in the name of justice. Yeah. Bing. That was Comey's paraphrase. So James Comey. Well, yeah, that. this is Comey yeah. writing this. Comey's mm -hmm. paraphrase of what he was getting from Reinhold Niebuhr when you think about that man. He was not only the head of the FBI, of course, he was also the number two man at the Justice Department as well with these kinds of ends justify the means motivations. This notion that a higher loyalty, a higher, you know, that's the name of his memoir, a higher understanding of what's good for everyone else. I mean, this is the kind of person who is not going to um, uphold the Constitution or the rights of American citizens, he is going to set out to uh, control American citizens and distribute justice, which he writes about, according to how he thinks it's best. I mean, this is an anti-constitutional movement. Perhaps that's a good way to understand it. Right. it. You know, these people aren't necessarily schooled as Marxists. That's a hard thing to become. I don't actually see that in a lot of these figures. But they are all against the Constitution. They are against elections. They are against the voice of the people. I mean, this is the most basic kind of power-hungry kind of people, and they find their home in this globalist-type movement, um, extra-legal, extra-constitutional, and certainly outside of elections. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the scariest part. You're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Diana West and Frank Gaffney, and we're talking about the, the links to which some people will go to gain power. And, Basically. Uh, override the uh, everything we hold dear as Americans. Amen. That's and, exactly and, true. You know, to again, bring this to the moment, part of the silencing, which is central to this saga of the truth tellers, is the silencing, the, the you know, marginalizing, the uh, treatment of demonizing, them as kooks, right. de demonizing them, is reflected in what is going on now with the House of Representatives and the media desperately trying to make sure we don't pay any attention to any of this and instead we look over here at right. Ukraine or Russia or the Mueller or Stormy Report Daniels. Or, or Stormy Daniels <laughs> or taxes or emoluments or anything, anything. but anything. just don't look at this. Don't look at the intelligence community. Because this could yeah. actually interrupt yeah. the progress well, of well, the counter-revolutionary well, Schumer, Schumer said something cause. about the revolutionary cause. He said you, Trump's getting in trouble if he wants to take on the intelligence community. When he was president-elect, yes, when right president at the elect, and so he, yes. he actually went further than that. What he, it, said, what it, he said that they can do all kinds of things yeah. to get you or something to that effect. Yeah. It was Six a very threatening yeah. kind of comment. So the intelligence community, yeah. <laughs> you're going to shake one of my other I mean, I so had they, it too, you know. So we all how, we all scale, did. how did the scales drop from your eyes, and you and you saw this? What was the re, what was well, the revelation? I'll tell you. the The CIA came out of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the wartime uh, intelligence service that that yeah, started under Bill Donovan. Roosevelt. Bill Donovan. Bill Donovan. Right. Yeah. Well, it was filled with communists. The OSS. It was riddled with them. Donovan thought it was. A good thing. Didn't he go to Yale? 
Yeah, I think he did, but he did. certainly Duncan Lee did. Well, the Ivy stuck. League, the Ivies were infiltrated yes. by com, by uh, oh, but that was communist. done the, the, by the, 1912. Like Harvard Law School yeah. was over, and you know, there's one strand here. With it's not only the revolutionaries, you know, like Lenin and so on. You also have the very genteel, go slow socialists of the British people, the Fabians. Mm-hmm who worked hand in glove with the Bolsheviks, very often literally, or maybe not literally, but very often in, you know, together yeah. um, in the same kinds of, of um, uh, soirees and, and movements and things like that. They helped each other. Um, but this is the concept of the elite. And they went right to Harvard. I was just going to say they went to Harvard. Yeah. Harvard was first in terms of this, this uh, twist. And we saw... Noah Feldman testifying mm-hmm. uh, against the president recently. Yes, we did. And he is the Felix Frankfurter professor at Harvard. Well, Felix Frankfurter was deeply tied to these Fabians, these these socialists. Um, and you know, it's 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 you know, it's an irony to see this name recur again, tying us to this century well, of. And I just have to say that yeah. that you know we've touched on it earlier, but to bring it back, one of the other totalitarian syndromes that we've had to confront between the Russians and the Chinese is the, I call them Sharia supremacists. And who is one of the greatest champions of Sharia in the United States today, who is a non-Muslim? Noah Feldman. Totalitarians stick together. No, ta- yeah. Noah Feldman is, again... The professor... Of who law at Harvard, yeah. who has been spending, starting under, by the way, this is not a trivial point, Bill, Elena Kagan, when she was the dean of the Harvard Law School, established an Islamic studies program in the law school with $20 million from, from Alawid bin Talal, okay. one of the great yeah. enablers of the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood. And yeah. Noah Feldman is one of its principals and has been yeah. pressing at every turn. Sharia-compliant finance, for example, and the wonders of Sharia. He was personally responsible for helping get Sharia into the Iraqi constitution Yes. after we helped free the place. So you have, again, these elitists who know better, and they have their rules, and they have their norms, and they have their agenda, and most of the rest of us can't believe that it would be so antithetical to everything our country stands for. Yet it is, and they're trying to impose it on us subversively, increasingly. So, Diana, you spend a lot of time on the Internet and the library. I mean, you do massive amount of research. If you look at your footnotes yes. in these books, it's not exactly like this. You're just offering an opinion. These are right. based on a lot of research lot of and, and connecting the dots and pulling the, the red thread. I have a giant library, yes. I call her the best dot connector <laughs> alive today. Well, so Comey, Clapper, Brennan, um, and, you know, we've got... Now the uh, the uh, shift and, and what's going on with his committee, and I guess it's now moved on to uh, our other committee chairman, Jerry Nedler, which is. Uh, but I think it's it's important to look at the impeachment as not just a singular event. It is simply the latest venue for this same effort. We saw it. It's it's morphed. It's changed. It's changed names. It's changed its direction. But going from even just the summer of 2016, when we started creating, they started creating the persona 
of Trump as a Russian puppet. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was essentially a, an effort to strip him of his his personality. I mean, this is a patriot. This is a patriotic America first man. They tried to create an alternate persona and take it down. And so we've seen it going from the media to the special counsel to, you know, the different... But again, well, but, but the irony, but the, but the perversity of that is Hillary is the one that sold the, all exactly. the, the, the uranium to Russia. Act of deflection. I mean, let's do, let's go with the opposite there of what's really happening. Right. Don't look over there, folks. Look again, over here. Yes, exactly. And again, Trump as a counter-revolutionary figure, that is the only reason we're seeing this. If this were any other president of either party, we would be moving forward in the progressive does, does fashion. He, does he know he's a counter-revolutionary figure? I suspect he does at some level. By now. I think, I think instinctively. And, and you is, know, the amazing thing about it, Bill, is, as you know from your time in New York, this is a guy who was just another New York liberal Democrat, basically, until he started he running for office. He was an equal opportunity donor. And, yeah. Equal opportunity and, donor. And he has been, as they say, mugged by reality. And I think it's helped shape him as the man he is today. Well, there's something interesting, which goes back to the Comey-Niebuhr divide with Trump, which goes to, um, in the 1970s, he, this is a New York Times word, he he and his family gravitated toward Norman Vincent Peale's church in Manhattan, very famous, Marble Collegiate, very famous church where he presided for decades. Norman Vincent Peale and Reinhold Niebuhr were at loggerheads with each other religiously, and politically, Peel being a very strong anti-communist, actually anti-FDR, anti-New Dealer, very alarmed by the anti-unconstitutional uh, powers seized by Roosevelt in the 30s, um, and he was involved that way, fighting communism from the pulpit throughout his time. And here we see Niebuhr trying to take down Peel back in the day, you know, attacking him. And then you see Comey and Trump again on the same. Mm-hmm. On these opposite sides, Comey being the devotee of Niebuhr, the Trump family quite close to Peel. Trump hosted his 90th birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, he was married, his first marriage was with him. His sister was married by him. I mean, this is a close relationship that speaks to more than, I think, just a, a liberal mug by reality. He had an innate pull toward this, this man and no, what he believed. Fair. But it's, it's just all these things floating back from popular culture. I think of, you know, Norman Vincent Peale was sort of made fun of as a Absolutely. self-help, bourgeois, right. Power of positive you know, thinking. Yeah. To not, not, not a serious person. Right. But in fact, he was a very serious person. I discovered this do amazing not know career. That. Right. Or we right. know it now. I mean, I feel like we're just peeling back this onion. I and know. We're only about, we're sort of, we've gotten about this far in, but we need to go further. Um, we're running out of time. I want to talk about the connections between Russia, Islam, what's going on now with China. Um, I also want to get into uh, you know, how this has worked in other countries. I understand they were behind a coal, store, coal strike in Britain when Thatcher was prime minister. So this right. is not happening just here. It's happening everywhere. I want to talk between the links, the links, the so-called red-green axis. Sure. Is Absolutely. that the environment tied to? Uh, no, no, no. Green of Islam, red oh, of green of Islam. Okay. Left. Well, this is fascinating, and thank you. I mean, what a gift mm. to oh, do all thank this work. You. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's, it's a real to gift to all you. of us because you know most of us don't have the time to to dig into things this deeply. So. Um, She's a national Keep it up. I'm I'm looking forward to the the next one. Right. (laughs) Well, anyway, that's it for now. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you back on the next Bill Walton Show. Thanks for listening. 
Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. 